Wait for it. Wait for it. And we're live. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just a couple of nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, the one, the only, Mr. David Hensley, introduce himself to our listeners and viewers. Hi, I'm David Hensley. I write uh, post-apocalyptic science fiction, uh, military science fiction, uh, urban fantasy, mostly for Three Ravens uh, publishing, Uh, and I'm super excited to be here. Outstanding. The next part of the introduction, dear listener, dear viewer, is how we found them. Uh, and Hillbilly over uh, William Joseph Roberts, if you want to be professional, over at Three Ravens Publishing made the introduction. Uh, apparently, he lives on the same continent as me, and he was military, so he thought we'd get along. Uh, funny how that works, you know, because America and stuff. America. America. All right. Are you ready for the religion question, sir? Let's do it. All right. Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica, or Space 1999? Babylon 5. Outstanding. Defend your answer, sir. Babylon Five is a complete story. Like they 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 did it the whole series, beginning, middle, and end, as a unified story. So it doesn't get to die the death of mediocrity that a lot of television series do, or get canceled like Firefly. Um, and Lando Malari is probably my favorite character in all of science fiction. Acceptable. Fox Entertainment is where good stories go to die. I am so mad at you, Jr. for making me watch Firefly. You're so mean. <laughs> she now gets to experience the incompleteness that is every brown coat's. And I'm a completionist. Like I own books just because I have to have the whole series. Like you set me up for failure, and that's just oh, I love your hat. See <laughs> <He's> squirrel. <laughs> I have that hat in the back seat of the truck. Outstanding. All right. That, but. Now you know. And knowing is half the battle, and the other half is violence. Uh, and since we're polytheistic over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast, Sorted and Sorcerer, Excalibur, or Beastmaster? Ooh. I'm about to go with Excalibur because I went back and rewatched Beastmaster not long ago, and I screwed up. The Suck Fairy came along, visited it, and made it terrible. But I remember it, like in my mind, I remember that being one of the greatest sword and sorcery films ever done. And then I went and rewatched it as a 40-something-year-old adult and was like, oh, what did I do this for? Mm-hmm. So Excalibur, yeah, though, it still holds up. Every time I rewatch it, it's great. Okay, that's well, fair. You never rewatch your stuff from your childhood. What's that old expression, never meet your heroes? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Well, it's like everybody asking me if I'm going to watch the new Little Mermaid. No, I'm not. And it has nothing to do with their skin tone. I don't want to ruin my childhood. I love Little Mermaid. Absolutely. All right. (laughs) And uh, because you've been on before and you have answered the religion question of coffee or tea, Stabby has a new question for you. Yes. What do you take with your coffee or tea? Donuts, croissants, toast. Hmm. Normally I'm drinking coffee at like 3 a.m. That's way too early for food. But okay. if I'm in a place that does pastries, uh, some sort of filled croissant is sort of my go-to. Okay. They have an awesome 
uh, apple pie filled croissant in Universal Studios. FYI, in the French Quarter part. All right. So this is an important question, Sarah, for your donuts, if you're getting them. Cake donuts or yeast donuts? Ooh, good question. Oh, yeast donuts for sure. I'm all about the cake donuts. I don't know. There's just something about them. I love and cake donuts. They're, they're crumbly. Like I end up losing at least a, you know, some some significant fraction of the donut down my shirt front, and then I'm picking the thing off like a six year old. And you know, I, the, the with the yeast donuts that doesn't happen. True, but they're so light, or like there's there's no substance to it. You can like the calorie to satiation ratio is just not there for me. Yeah, yeah, but then you need more calories, and I'm trying to be less fat, not more fat. That's why you eat ones have... the holes in the middle. The holes in the middle make them diet donuts. <laughs> so we have people. we have a cold brew coffee shop um, in Imperial Beach, just down the street. It's owned by a Navy vet, and um, it's called Trident Coffee. And they only do cold brews. Like they have a little thing where they can heat it up for you, but like it all comes out of like beer taps. So like, hmm. why would you want to heat it up? And all of their uh, titles of their coffee are called like um, daily rations and stuff like that. Oh, and it's a lot of fun. But they have a protein donut. It's a it's a protein donut, and it's got um, real bacon on top. Nice. I've never eaten such a dense donut in my life. I was going to say it was heavy. It's like a pound pastry. I've heard people like I've never thought heavy. to mix bacon with pastries, but someone tells me like, "Oh no, no, get a maple bacon donut. It is the most delicious thing ever." I have not tried it. Have you? Uh, since you're in the Hampton Roads area as well, um, have you been to Duck Donuts? What did you think? They yes, do that kind of stuff. I've had Duck Donuts, and then there's another place called O Doodle Doos. I haven't heard um, of that one. That's that must be in Chesapeake. And the uh, maple bacon donuts are definitely like one of the best things you can get from this guy. I did the um, the duck donuts because it was it's across the street from uh, the car dealership when I was getting service. I'm like, I'll just walk over there and try it. It was so sweet. I'm like, I couldn't eat like a quarter of the donut. I had to take it home as leftovers because I felt like I was about to become the diabetes man. It was oh, so I sweet. I, I am a type 2 diabetic, and I only eat like a half of one of those things. Yeah, it was just too much. I mean, it wasn't bad flavor-wise. It was just so sweet. Yeah, and they're I, huge. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, it's true. I took Nick to this famous donut shop in Vegas uh, the morning of our wedding. <laughs> we, we woke up hungover, of course, because of the night before the celebrations. But um, <laughs> it's called Pink Box. Yes, I know. I know. Trust me. I know. It's very Vegas of them. But uh, the donuts are the size of your head. And I was like, no, I want the maple bacon one. And so he's like, I want a bear claw. And they hand us two boxes. I was like, we only ordered two donuts. Did we, did we order wrong? Because we're looking at the case and their donuts are like normal sized donuts. Um, my brother told them that we were about to get married, and so they hooked us up with the bigger version of what we ordered. My donut was this big, and it had strips of bacon. It wasn't like chopped up bacon. It had strips of bacon. Like a pound of bacon across it? Yes. And then his bear claw, when he pulled it out, was the size of an actual bear's paw. Wow. That sounds like donuts. 
They're big oh too. Oh my god! It we ate through it um, for three days before we were like, "That's it. Just throw the rest away. It's too much donut. It's too much donut." Because I, like we're just sitting there picking at it for three days, and I was like, "No, just throw it away. I can't do no more." He's like, I, "I had enough. I need to go see a dentist now, just to make sure." <laughs> okay, now that. Now that everyone's hungry, and if you're looking, uh, or if you're not looking, if you're listening uh, on the podcast, audio-only app, uh, she is implying with hand gestures that the the pastry was as big as a grown woman's face. Bigger, actually. Uh, yeah. So, you know. It's bigger than my head, so about the size of Nick's. <laughs> yeah. It's just huge, huge. Uh, and with that being said, um, we've had you on panels before, but you haven't been here to sell just something you've written. So uh, since we're talking about your writing, you mentioned that you served in the Navy. It's in your bio over on the Amazons. So do you think your time in uniform affects the way you tell stories? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that uh, I don't know how it is for uh, Army guys, but if you get like two sailors with some time on their hands sitting together, the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to start freaking telling sea stories. Like that's just what we do. And so that's some of that kind of bleeds over into my writing. Um, and just the num just the sheer number of oddballs and characters and people that you're around in the military, like you can't help, but put some of that to good use in the characters that you write. At least I can. Okay. Speaking of putting it to good use. So do you, do you draw on people you knew with names changed to protect the innocent or not so innocent? Oh, yeah. 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 There's a couple of people that uh, were, I mean, everybody's had at least one really crappy leader if you were in the service for more than like 30 seconds. Um, I was in the Navy for 20 years. I've got a freaking like central casting collection of crappy leaders that I go ahead and cycle through some of their personality quirks and issues for some of my villains, especially the lower level ones that get knocked off, you know, at different places. I can believe that. And it's, it's sometimes you get the ones you thought were good until you actually saw them in challenging situations and you realize what scumbags they were. Yes. So I, I've been there. So I feel you there. So obviously you, you've hinted or said explicitly, I should say, that your time in uniform affects the way you tell stories. But we also consume stories. We watch the movies. We read the books. Do you think having been in the Navy yourself affects the way you engage with fiction? Uh, I think it might, at least where I encounter fiction written to portray military, you know, some, you know, in some way, shape or form, it certainly affects how I consume it a little bit just because you've, you know, once, once you've been in any branch of the service, there's just, there's things that are done in fiction that you look at and you're like, oh, that's, that's just, this is garbage. Why, why are they writing it that way? Or you run across stuff, then you're like, oh, yeah, that, that person either really did their homework or they've been in because they got, you know, one detail or another right. But a lot of the way I consume fiction, man, I've been reading since I was probably about four or five. And so I've been eating up fiction for an awfully long time. And, you know, 20 years in the Navy, I'm 48 years old. Like I've had 28 years of fiction consumption that wasn't that didn't happen while I was in the service. <laughs> Okay. So what was the gateway drug? Uh, I mean, what was your first uh, encounter with, with speculative fiction then? Was there like something that hooked you 
because you know if you're saying all the way back to four or five, like I, I yeah. think I was too busy making mud pies and you know running around in the outside to be reading at that age. Yeah, I had a got a grandmother that really wanted to be a school teacher, but didn't have you know she was a like the oldest of eight or nine siblings. Um, grew up, you know, got married and had kids during the Great Depression. Uh, like she didn't have the cash to go get the education to be a teacher. And so when I came along and I spent a lot of time in my grandmother's house, I was sort of the test dummy for her dreams of educating. And so I kind of cut my teeth on uh, stories of uh, Robin Hood, uh, King Arthur, Tarzan of the Egg Rice Burroughs, Tarzan of the Apes was really big. And then I had a mom. My mom worked in a bookstore for a number of years and would take me to work with her because, again, childcare wasn't something poor hillbillies could pay for. And I would hang out in the bookstore and the lady who owned the bookstore realized, you know, figured out pretty quick that I was a pretty voracious reader. And so anything that was damaged, they tear the front cover off of. The front cover goes back to the publisher and they get a, a fresh copy of whatever book was damaged in shipping. And the other stuff gets tossed in, you know, gets tossed. She let me pick through the toss pile and anything I wanted, I could take home. So I had a whole library of Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, little Robert E. Howard. Um, geez, what else did I have? Uh, Lloyd Alexander's Perdian Chronicles, uh, Lord of the Rings. I had a whole shelf of that stuff with cardboard book covers that I made out of cereal boxes so that I could tell what was what. Um, and I got kind of about 11. I got hooked on Stephen King for a little while, which totally warped my poor prepubescent brain. Doesn't it so, though? <laughs> I used to read Stephen King just to, when I was in, like, fourth grade, third and fourth grade, mostly because it was the shock reaction you get from your teachers. You're like, oh, my God, you're too young to be reading that. And they talk just yeah. like that. You know, why not? That's the voice I'm giving them. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I get it. But I, I wouldn't have read that on my own. Um, I think Orson Scott Cards um, was one of the first sci-fi that I read. It was his Homecoming series. Yeah, card. Um, I don't think I've read Homecoming. I think the first thing of cards I read was Ender's Game. Like that was my gateway into card, and then I sort of wandered around through some of the other stuff he did. That's actually one of his that I haven't read. It's it's on my list to get back to, but there's so many books in so little time. Um, so it's you know it's a balancing act. But yeah, so that was that was it for you, huh? Um, did you did you know you wanted to write stories from a young age, or did that sort of come later? That was probably. I don't know, probably 11 or 12. And I was writing uh, Lloyd Alexander and Edgar Rice Burroughs fan fiction on an old manual typewriter. My mom, <coughs> excuse me, my mom had gotten, you know, pulled it out of, I don't know if she got it at a yard sale or where she got it, but she gave it to me and found ink ribbons for it and stacks of paper. And I would sit around and bang out, you know, terrible fan fiction you know, continuing the adventures of Tarzan or John Carter on Mars or, uh, you know, new new adventures, battling the Horned King, that kind of stuff. Okay. Did you keep any of those? No, no I don't. The only thing I still have, uh, my mom kept, was a eh, kind of a novella thing that I cranked out my sophomore year of high school as some sort of a, it was a writing assignment and I kind of went over the top on the thing, included uh, like 
character illustrations, that kind of stuff. And my mom kept that and hung on to it all these years. I think I still got it somewhere around the house. Would you uh, ever let anyone else read that? Oh, maybe as like a, I don't know, like a freebie thing on an email newsletter or something, just because it's like, if there's somebody out there that's like, man, I just, I want to be an author and I just don't know if I can do it. And they, they'll look at that and be like, oh yeah, I can totally be an author. Like this knucklehead was writing stuff like that. And he's in high school. Anybody can be a writer. <laughs> so um, given that you had such a long time between when you started doing this um, in dedicated manner after you retired from the Navy. Um, did you find it hard to get into the rhythm and get back at it? Um, I mean, it's been a long time since school, you know? Yeah. What happened to me, I think was I really fell in love with the idea of being a writer and I never fell in love with the idea of the hard work that it takes to actually crank out use, you know, readable stories. And I met like, 1993, I graduated high school, met my wife, got her pregnant with our first kid, got married all between like April of 93 and December of 93. And so from that point forward, it was, you know, trying to figure out how to do life as a 19 year old with a wife and a couple of kids and writing stories just was not something that I felt I could spend time on. And I just kept putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And then a couple of years ago, about a month before my 47th birthday, I looked in the mirror and there was this old bastard with gray in his beard staring back at me. And I thought, you know, it might be time for me to actually get busy with this writing thing. And well, I had, you know, decades of learning how to work hard at things. It didn't matter what that thing was. And so I just kind of applied work ethic that I picked up in the military towards, you know, writing stories and it started paying off pretty quick. So what was the first thing you wrote when you got back into it? I wrote a story called on desperate ground that I submitted to three Ravens for the JTF 13 legends anthology. Okay. And it got picked up. Nice. Actually, um, I'll take that back. That wasn't the first thing I wrote. The first thing I wrote was a story I called these days. And I wrote that thing the way that veterans talk. So it was pretty profanity laden. And I gave it to my wife to read. She read it, looked at me and was like, David, you cannot submit this. This is terrible. <laughs> try again. And I was like, oh, all right, <laughs> I'll try again. And so I wrote Desperate Ground and that's what got picked up. So what did you do with the, um, the one that she said was terrible? Um, I've got it. Like it's the, I think that the bones of the story are good. I just need to go in and uh, do a better job with the language. Like I didn't understand how the brain processes uh, language when I was writing that. Like if there's a word, like if a word appears a couple of times over the course of two sentences, it's like it's appeared, you know, five or six times because right. of the way our brains process information, especially when we're reading, because we're thinking about the line we just read. We're reading a line and we're also reading ahead. So we're reading, you know, three lines at a time. So if a word appears a couple of times in there, it's amplified. It gets worse on audiobooks. Yes, it does. So, okay. So obviously, you know, we're here to talk about your book in the Car Wars universe. 
which is based on the Steven Jackson game through his uh, Jackson's Steven Jackson's productions, I think. Uh, GURPS, if you're familiar with that, uh, dear listener, uh, generic universal role playing. Um, were you a fan of the game? Of the Car Wars game? Not. Hold on a moment. There we go. There it is. This guy. Yeah. Yeah, this was the GURPS Auto Duel is sort of the supplement that got produced after the Car Wars game. Hold on. I'm going to put you on solo layout so you can show the cover. There we go. So this guy, GURPS Auto Duel, is a supplement that got produced for Steve Jackson Games' uh, generic universal role-playing system, GURPS. And that got done after the Car Wars tabletop game sort of became kind of kind of a like cult classic. Like it... It just became super popular to the point where there were um, chapters of what they called the American Auto Duel Association that were all over the country. You know, like people would pop up in game shops and play, you know, play car wars and had this sort of competitive society going on. And so the GURPS Auto Duel stuff just kind of branched out of that. And that's how I was introduced to car wars was through GURPS Auto Duel because I was a role player long before I was a tabletop war gamer. Okay. So... What made you decide? I know they did an open call over at Three Ravens, but what made you decide to write a novel in this world? Um, I got a phone call from Hillbilly. Uh, dude reached out to me and was like, hey, man, um, we just got licensed to write fiction in the Car Wars universe. Do you want to write a book? And at the time, I was working on a JTF 13 novel purely on speculation that Hillbilly might take it. So when I get when I get a call that's asking me, hey, man, do you want to write in a specific IP? I'm like, well, I'm like, yes, of course I do. How many do you want? Well, we need you to write at least three. Okay, I'll write three books. You know, and of course, it was all contingent on cranking out an outline, submitting the outline, getting you know approval from Steve Jackson on the outline. He wasn't just going to be like, oh, yeah, they, you know. Hillbilly said this Dave guy can write. I'll just take whatever he, you know, whatever he throws my way. Like there was an approval process for that. But yeah, that was I like basically on the strength of on desperate ground, like I got, you know, a call to, to at least take a swing at it. Cool. So what can you tell us? Well, first we're gonna show the cover, because why not? Um, so this is the cover. Like, did you get a say in this? Uh yeah, yeah. I, surprisingly, like I didn't realize that authors got to say much about the cover art. <laughs> um, but uh, I had uh, gotten, uh, yeah, I was able to give some input on the on the cover. Like that's more or less how I kind of envisioned it in my head when I started typing up the description of what I thought should be on the front cover. So. Um... Did you intentionally tell them to put Humongous on the cover? I, I sent them a picture of Humongous that I took while I was out on my uh, route. Because right, give me a second, dear listener. It's uh, I'm going to throw this up there at Banner. So this is how it is spelled. Hugh, H-U-G-H for the listeners. Mongus, M-O-N-G-O-U-S. And it is the name of the huge, like literally like two-story tall um Ape mascot at Ocean Breeze Water Park in Virginia Beach. Yep. Which, which in the Car Wars universe, uh, Hampton Roads is sort of a post-apocalyptic wasteland, 
uh, that's sort of the haunt of cannibals. And that's basically all that's said about it in any of the supplements. And I, for some reason, my brain hyper fixated on, well, why cannibals? And so I came up with a reason for why cannibals. And I thought, you know, it'd be cool is if the cannibals like set up shop in the old ocean breeze water park. And so that's the home camp of one of the cannibal tribes called the blue blasters, which is where, um, our hero, uh, Bobby Hank and his driver, Mabel Holland have to go to get their vehicle for their comp for the competition in men's run. All right. So why did you pick the hillbilly names that you did? Well, partially because I really like when, when I was, when, uh, William Joseph Roberts uh, was talking about the sort of the premise, you know, the, the the overarching connective tissue for the series, which was this cross-country road race, Dead Man's Run, which is sort of, uh, oh, geez, like, uh, you know, bubblegum rally mixed up with death race kind of thing. Uh, I immediately had sort of this image in my head of uh, Ricky Bobby from Talladega Nights. <laughs> in a car, right? And I was like, "Well, I can't have like that's that's a little silly for me, right? I need something a little more, a little more concrete." And I got to thinking, you know, one of well, one of the things Steve Jackson had said was that Car Wars really is a little bit. It's it's a lot like Little C Cyberpunk and the Old West got together. And so in my head, I had this like Outlaw Josie Wales meets Blade Runner aesthetic going on, and I needed a hero that was kind of like the Outlaw Josie Wales. You know, he's he's a tough guy. Good movie. Kind of an outcast, you know. He's, you know, he's hard as nails, but fundamentally he's a good guy, and that's what you got with you know Bobby Hank. His actual name is Robert Fulton Henry, but his racing name when he was a mover and shaker in auto duel circles was Bobby Hank the Pale Rider, and they called him the Pale Rider because, well, he killed a lot of folk in the arena, and his claim to fame was that he was one of the few auto duelists to still be in his original meat. He'd never been killed and rebooted into a clone. Nice. Well, so, okay. So we're going to do the commercial because uh, this is sponsored by the uh, the Burning Road series, the Autoduel Chronicles. So we've got a commercial from the publisher. And I think if you're watching this at home, it will help sort of sell what we're doing here. So enjoy this commercial interlude. Atlanta cabbie by day. Amateur auto duelist by night, Ricky Turner is living the dream. That is, until he wakes up in a Gold Cross facility to discover his last match was more than a failure. It was a fatality. Indebted for the cost of the clone body and reboot, Ricky heads back to the arena to do the one thing he knows how to do. Drive offensively. But at the rate amateur matches pay out, it'll take several lifetimes to pay his debt. Luckily, the AADA has announced a new nationwide road rally designed to challenge even the hardiest of auto-dueling teams. Dead Man's Run. Can Ricky and his clandestine crew traverse the wasteland from Atlanta to Sturgis, survive against packs of cannibals, roving biker gangs, and amateur auto-duelists out to make a name for themselves? Welcome to the world of the Car Warriors Auto-Duel Chronicles. Tales from the freeways of the future where the right-of-way goes to the biggest guns and death sports rule the airwaves. From clandestine highway battles to primetime arena combat, jump behind the wheel, follow the fast-paced action, and never forget to drive offensively. 
Burning Roads, Dead Man's Run, Book One by William Joseph Roberts. Narrated by Joshua Saxon. Available from Three Ravens Publishing on Amazon and anywhere books are sold. For those of you who uh, who served in the early war on uh, in Iraq and ran the gun trucks, it definitely has that uh, that vibe. Our mantra unofficially was "Drive it like you stole it." Uh, and so I spent a lot of time fighting wars on roads. So I, I'm definitely getting some of those vibes in there. Was that intentional when you guys set up this this concept? Um, <clears throat> well, it's <clears throat> it's just baked into the car wars universe, like from the its very inception. You know, it's this idea that society has collapsed, but not completely. And one of the things that provides, you know, big time entertainment, aside from combat football, is auto dueling. And so, you know, the Car Wars game is constructed around, you know, cars with guns, you know, shooting the hell out of each other. And that kind of expanded into this, you know, what would life be like? in a world where armed vehicles was sort of the order of the day. And so, you know, that, that combat over the road, running, you know, running convoys, dealing with armed bandits, that kind of stuff just kind of seemed to flow naturally from that idea. Okay. So obviously you knew that they got the IP, but how did you go from, would you like to write in this universe, which is a game you might vaguely remember from your childhood to I've got this story. As I've written for other IPs, and it's the leap between I know the universe to I know the story I want to tell in the universe is sometimes cumbersome. Well, I don't know. Sometimes, sometimes these things just sort of pop into my head. Um, part of it is I spent a lot of years running tabletop role-playing games, right? Like whether it was second edition AD&D or GURPS or Champions or, you know, pick your game system of choice, um, which is – kind of the whose line is it anyway of storytelling like you know the, the points are all made up the rules don't matter the game master has a plan and that plan gets thrown out the window 30 seconds into the gaming session and so this collaborative storytelling thing means meant that sometimes i get i have story ideas on the fly from just a couple of little weird details and one of the details was the name you know bobby hank the pale rider and i was like okay well what the heck brings a legend back to the sport well, it'd have to be something pretty serious to get him to leave the sport in the first place. And the same thing would be have to be the thing that brings him back to the sport. And so I just kind of had this – I'm going to – if I want to say – yeah, I'll say this. It's, really, it's kind of a kind of a love story dressed up as a Western in a cyberpunk setting. The guy's – you know, he, he's got a wife who's got this terrible reoccurring terminal illness called clone download rejection syndrome. syndrome. You download her into a clone body, and within two weeks, a month, you know, she's lost her mind trying to kill everything around her and dies horribly. And the guy spent his entire life savings trying to figure out a cure. You know, he, he, he sold the fancy house. He sold all the cars. He sold all the memorabilia. He's living out of a freaking camp, you know, out of a trailer in a, you know, in a trailer park in Gloucester, running salvage in the Hampton Roads dead zone to pay for another round of treatment at an off the books research facility down in the Carolinas. And so when they come along and say, Hey man, we need fans in the stands and you Bobby Hank, the pale rider, we, you know, we need your name, your brand recognition to put butts in the seats 
we want you to make this run. And oh, by the way, if you do make this run, we'll bring your wife into this research project, you know, the into an on the books research project to help take care of this problem she's got. You know, it's an offer he can't refuse. And all of that just kind of showed up in my head once I started thinking about the guy's name and the circumstances under which he would have existed. So before Stabby asks her question, because I know she has one, uh, did you come up with the name or was that given to you from the lore that existed? No, I came up with that on my own. Okay. All right. Now, Stabby, you can ask. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. <laughs> it's not so much um, a question. I was just going to kind of make a statement. It, um, like, because I've, I've never read any of the Car Wars or really, honestly, didn't didn't know that was a thing so i'm not definitely gonna have to do more research on it but hearing you guys describe it it was giving me like um like mad max and death race a little book of eli kind of vibes in there so uh, it was a, more of a statement than a question <laughs> so is that a fair assessment having studied the world to be able to write this novel of the world yeah it's it's i mean it's not quite as dystopian as mad max like um, at least North America isn't like there's cities and the roads between the cities, you know, in some places, the roads are pretty safe and other places, not so much. Um, certain locales are just kind of considered ungoverned. And it's a lot more like the Wild West in those instances. Um, but so it's it's a little more, you know, uh, <coughs> trying to think of a good analog. Probably it's a little more like Blade Runner in that respect. Okay. Where the cities, like the most of the population lives in the cities. Um, algae is sort of the primary food cash crop because there's been all these different blights that have wiped out grain and corn and that kind of stuff. And so algae is the primary food source, but it's plentiful. Like nobody's going hungry. I mean, they're eating algae, so they're not happy, but they're not starving necessarily. Um, Kill for a cheeseburger. <laughs> right. And if you got enough cash, cheeseburgers are available. And with half the cash, you can make your algae taste like a cheeseburger. You get the deep fab, <laughs> deep fried algae burger. Um, so the illness that the wife had, was that something you added to the universe? Yes. So what else did you add that wasn't already there? Because there's sometimes a fine line between taking the existing tools of the universe to tell your story and then where you can add when you're playing in someone else's IP. Because once you write it and publish it, it's canon. Right. And I, but again, part of, you know, and that's why there was a, I don't want to call it a stringent approval process for the outline because it wasn't like that. Like I wrote up the outline for the, the whole, like I outlined all three books, submitted the outline to Steve Jackson. Um, Steve and I had some conversations back and forth over some, uh, what you can and can't do with cloning. Because one of the things that I wanted to do, he was like, no, that will totally break the universe. We can't do that. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I won't do that then. You know, I'm playing in somebody else's sandbox. It's not really very cool to show up and, you know, take their Tonka truck and stomp it into little bits. Like, that's that that's just poor manners. And well, so in our defense, if you're of a certain age, your Tonka trucks were made of Tonka trucks were made of metal and they were damn near indestructible. I remember using them as roller skates, one on each foot. Yeah, and the Steve Jackson games Car Wars universe is kind of like the metal Tonka truck of IPs. Like, <laughs> you know, like you you would have to go out of your way to break it, and 
you know, Steve was great. Like I love working with Steve. One of the, I, I probably upped my storytelling game by 50% just in those little conversations back and forth over what I could and couldn't do inside the IP because it gave me constraints. And I figure if I'm a storyteller, I should be able to tell a story inside a set of given constraints. If I can't, then I'm not a very good storyteller. And so, so we added, it's like I added the, the, the clone download rejection syndrome, but made it, you know, incredibly rare so that it's not happening, you know, all the time, because if it happened all the time, nobody who had money would want to get cloned if they could avoid it. So we did that. And then I'm trying to think what else I added. I added the flavor of the cannibal tribes living in Hampton Roads dead zone. Like I, I added uh, diesel powered motorcycles that run on biodiesel made from human fat. That was one of the things I added that certainly wasn't there before. Okay. Um, so your premise is they're in this race, right? And this is the story of them getting there. Obviously, yes. other people are writing stories during the same race. So it's like Cannonball Run, uh, and you get a story series of, of intertwined novels from each of the players. Do you know who's going to win when you write it? Uh, pre no. No, we do not know who's going to win. Like, we're all still working on um, – I forget how many core authors there are. There are at least – let me see. William Joseph Roberts, myself, Christopher Woods, Mike Morton. So there's five, I think there's five core authors. So you're talking, you know, three books per author for the original, for the first run. So you're talking, a, you know, 15 novels in the series. Um, and we're all each turning out book one right now. And so once all of the book ones come out, then we'll, you know, everybody will start cranking out their book, you know, book number two. Um, and well, I don't, think that anybody really knows who is going to win but part of that is because of how the race is structured like there's going to be a final challenge in Sturgis and you know big corporations are part of the deal and you just can't trust corporations at least not in the car wars universe right don't look behind the mirror this is just about the car wars universe okay um do you have then a plan for if your guy loses, like how, like two alternate endings? Because um, I've never had to write where I had to have an ending where it could go either way. I, I have a plan for what's going to happen to Bobby and crew. And yeah, I, I really, I can't say much without spoiling something. So all yeah, I can we say, actually do that. Yeah. All I can say is I've got a plan. Did you have to come up with alternative plans given that you don't know because the publishers haven't told you yet the end result uh, of this race? No, because my initial ending works regardless of who's going to be able to win. Okay. So winning doesn't mean everyone else dies then. Is that correct? Correct. So you could, you could, you could die, but you could also lose and still live. Correct. Okay. Now, the uh, the offer that he was made did he have to win to get the uh, to get the award or just participate? No, oh, he just has to show up. They need you know they 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 needed fans in the stands and Bobby Hank coming back to auto dueling would be like Mickey Mantle coming back to baseball. Um, you know there there there's a whole lot of people who are adults you know like 
late middle age, early old age adults in the Car Wars universe that had Bobby Hank, Pale Rider, you know, auto duelist cards in the spokes of their bicycles. Okay. So how much, okay, so we've mentioned that there are people watching at home as they do this race. It's giving me shades of Hunger Games where, like, you know, the fans could vote to give people, you know, extra perks or whatever. Is that something incorporated into the Car Wars universe? Um, from the game standpoint, I don't think so. Um, from the, like, the tabletop role-playing game standpoint, I've never run a game where there was a rally race going on, so I'm not for sure. But that's a hundred percent the way that things work for the dead man's run. Like the fans, like, cause there's, you know, everything that we have today exists in some degree, which means there's, you know, social media feeds and some racers are good at engaging with their fans on social media. Others are not, which means sometimes racers get extra cool stuff dropped on them by drone or at, you know, waypoints they can pick up extra ammo or upgrades for their cars. And other racers don't because they aren't interested in dealing with the social media aspect of the race. Okay. So it's uh, it's in the universe and then it's up to each individual racer and thus the author who writes the, the stories to right. incorporate it or not. Yep. Okay. Now how much of the constraints were explained to you when you started writing and how much of it you've had to sort of swag as you went? Scientific <laughs> wild ass guess for those that don't know what swag is. Um, well, and this is, I did this to myself. I wrote, I put together the outlines, submitted it to Steve, and I thought to myself, you know what? I'm not going to wait. I'm going to get started because I've never written a novel-length work before. I don't know how long it's going to take me. I want to get this done. Like, I was shooting to get it done in time for Liberty Con. Uh, that didn't happen, but for life reasons more than anything else. Um, so I started writing, but I started writing the story with a three-person crew. So I had a driver, a gunner, and an engineer in the vehicle. And I got five chapters written before I got feedback from Steve that, hey, we really want this to be two-man crews. And I thought, well, damn. All right. I'll combine the gunner or I'll combine the driver and the engineer. I'll just make them the same person. The mechanic and the driver could be the same person. Not that big of a deal. And so I just, at chapter six, I started writing as though I they only had two people in the crew and finished out the book that way. And then when I came back around to my first revision, I had five chapters that I had to go back in and combine those two characters. And that was another one of those things that kind of made me up my uh, storytelling game because I had to take two dis separate distinct people who I'd spent time and effort up to and including building music playlists for to get in their heads and smash them into one person. And one was a guy, one was a girl. Was they were they like uh, multiple personalities? You could just like assign it and then be like, "Oh, they were just crazy." There was only one person to begin with. Guy, oh, I wish that would have been the case, but no, no. One of them was a, one of them was a pampered rich kid, and the other one was Mabel, who was this kind of genius mechanic who lives in the Bobby's neighbor in the trailer park. And so they were two very different personalities that I had to go ahead and like pick the bits that I wanted to keep and discard the rest. So what is the, what can you tell us about the vehicle that they're in? Cause that sounds like it's almost as much a character too. Ah, the vehicle, the vehicle's name is, what did she call it? Crap. Now I'm going to forget they, what they named the vehicle. Cause I haven't looked at that manuscript in several months, 
Janice. Is it Janice? Darn it. Um, so they gave it a name. You, you're, it's escaping you. Like that's the every they name the vehicle. Yeah. Is is that you name something? So, so they name the vehicle. Then you forget what you named it. Yeah. Um, so what kind of that's, vehicle was it? What was it based on? Well, the the like part of the premise. One of the sponsors for the race is the automotive manufacturer Luxford Drummond. Uh, Luxford okay. Drummond has been had been known primarily for their production of luxury automobiles, and they decided to go after market share and sort of help middle American, you know, middle middle class people reclaim the open road, and so they produced the Luxford Drummond Quest, which is sort of a cross between a battle bus and a minivan that's armed with a thrill three millimeter gauss gatling gun uh micro multiple launch rocket system mine droppers and initially it was armed with uh, gauss shotguns as chase weapons that got replaced by a six millimeter gauss cannon as their rear facing weapon part way through the race hmm so obviously a lot of space is going to be taken up with the engine block to power because that's a lot of weight and then you got a lot of rounds which is also going to weigh you down until you fire it the engine's got to be able to compensate for the um, reverse um, pressure that firing those things will put on on the vehicle as it's going forward so obviously i mean it's got to be either really big for them to have like a couch to sleep on or they're not sleeping in that it's not like your mama's rv it's not the ben 10 mobile so how do you handle that while they're traveling? Well, it's a one of the interesting things about the Car Wars universe is that petroleum is not a very plentiful resource anymore. Like it is if you live in Texas, Louisiana, or Oklahoma, but they have seceded from the Union and formed their own little nation called the Oil States. Every, <coughs> everybody else is operating off of some flavor of electric vehicle which requires a charge every 300 or 400 miles <clears throat> except that luxford drummond went and put a lot of work into the magneto hydrodynamic power plants that can generate a heck of a lot of power they're not hugely massive but they're a little bit bigger than the actual battery packs that you would put in a regular car but the power plant that they put in there is Part of their reclaiming the open road experiment and so they have a power plant that's overpowered enough to run the um, electromagnetic rail gun or the electromagnetic minigun that's poking out of the front run the you know six millimeter gauss cannon poking out of the back and handle you know powering the four drive motors on the wheels along with uh you know search radar ground search radar and a bunch of other you know sophisticated bells and whistles so there are systems uh, that we were experimenting as I was getting out of the Army oh, you know, 07 that will allow them to detect audible signatures so they, you can tell if you're getting shot at what direction it's coming from. So there's a lot of technology that would be old by the time this book, these books are happening. So did you play with any of that military tech that, that uh, we would have used while we were in, like um, some of the radars the, and, and that kind of stuff? A little bit, but I didn't get real deep in the weeds on that part, partially because I didn't know that there were things out there like the ability to pinpoint direction based on sound, uh, you know, from weapons fire. 
but I did hook them up with um, seismographs, you know, the ability to read vibration through the ground in the vehicle as a passive uh, sensor system. Okay. And they, they do have uh, a limited radar. So what is the sleeping situation if they're going cross country? I mean, they're <laughs> stopping at hotels every night, which sounds improbable. Um, are they like camping it or does it have like uh, ability to sleep inside the vehicle? Um, I mean, I guess you could sleep inside the vehicle, but have you ever made a cross country road trip and neither you or your buddy really felt like stopping to sleep? And so one guy would crash in the side seat and the other guy would drive. I mean, when I was in the army, we, it was the only time I drove like that and we were kind of trying not to die. So we were all awake. Uh, yeah. So, you know, so yeah. this is, this is kind of like, like that. I mean, there are moments where people get to take naps. Um, I mean, the title of the book, 72 Hours to Graceland, from the moment they start the race, they've got 72 hours to make it to Memphis, which seems like a long time until you take into account the condition of the roads, um, bandits, you know, all of the different things that can happen to you between Hampton Roads and Memphis, Tennessee. And there's a couple of points where some rest has gotten, but it's not great rest. Um, but there's no stopping to sleep. Okay. Um, I didn't, it was in the title, so I should have, but, uh, I, I didn't register the 72 hours part is how long the trip was. Cause I do know, um, assuming cause I pulled up on Google that from ocean breeze, which is where you said it started to Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee is, uh, 934 miles, which is roughly 14 hours, according to this in modern road conditions. Uh, if the roads are impassable, you could easily double that. Um, so that's what 28 hours minimum, and that's assuming you know dirt road level of impassable, not no roads and detours. Right. And so, okay, do they have um, the obstacles that they're fighting on this trip? Is it mostly other racers? Is it um, the environment as well as, you know, you mentioned um, cannibals and stuff like, like what kind of obstacles are they expected to overcome? Well, there are a tribe of cannibals that uh, there's interfering corporations because they want ratings. And if a particular team is having too easy of a time of it, well, like all reality television, they're going to try to produce some drama. And so they have, you know, corporate problems, they have cannibal problems, they have bandit problems in the form of a motorcycle gang called the Vulcans that sort of own the roads between Birmingham and, and Birmingham and Knoxville. And one of the, like, waypoint number one is Knoxville, waypoint number two is Birmingham, and then the final, des you know, final stop is Memphis. Uh, the, the mission from Knoxville to Birmingham is a relief convoy to get ammunition and medical supplies into Birmingham to help break the siege that the Vulcans have laid to the city of Birmingham. And then oh. they also have their fellow racers, um, you know, taking pot shots at them and some of the different challenges along the way. Okay. Um, so how much of the challenges they were facing were external to your novel writing because like it sounds like the siege on um in, it was it uh, knoxville that would have probably been something that was predetermined 
when you yep. started this? Yep, Siege of Birmingham is a uh, long-established canon in the Car Wars universe. So what other obstacles, like where was the line between what you created and what was existing in the universe that you just had to work through? Oh, um, trying to think. Like uh, the area around Knoxville is considered ungoverned territory. Like it's just owned by outlaws. And so that was part of the Car Wars universe. So I just kind of had to work with that. Uh, Birmingham was under siege from the motorcycle, you know, from the Vulcan motorcycle gang, which is a thing I could, that I kind of had to work with. Otherwise, it was pretty much in my hands to decide what the challenges were going to be, you know, what was going to be driving the conflict for the teams. Okay. So you mentioned your two main characters. Were there any secondary characters that existed outside of the vehicle they're racing in that you really liked? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, two of my favorite characters who are also sort of the antagonists for this leg of the race uh, were a couple of uh, blood um, big league unlimited dueling auto duelists um, in Kerbs Auto or Kerbs Auto Duel in uh, Car Wars Universe. There's two major leagues of auto dueling. There's the American Auto Duel Association, and then there's Big League Unlimited Dueling. The American Auto Duel Association is sort of the, uh, I mean, it's sort of like the PGA of auto dueling. Like they're they've got rules. They kind of frown on fatalities. Um, you win more based on points and skill. Big League Unlimited Dueling is, you know, sort of the UFC of auto dueling. You, you get in, it's bloody, you know, it's it's the Thunderdome. One man, you know, two men enter, one man leaves. That's how blood sort of handles their business. And so two blood duelists are sponsored onto the team that are their, their code names or their call signs are Black Dragon and Headsman. And those two, like I've, completely fell in love with those two as antagonists. Like they're just, they're, they're, they're hardcore. They're cocky that, you know, they can definitely walk their talk and they're just complete tools. So before we wrap this up, cause we're, we're about the hour mark and we're trying to do better at the pace in the episodes um, with this universe. Obviously that means if, from what you described, they can talk on the radio to other racers. Even do you get to engage with the racers from the other novels that the other authors are writing in dialogue? Um, no, we haven't. You know, we haven't done that yet. Uh, there's some plans down the road for that to happen, um, and there's certainly some Easter eggs and references back and forth to you know different things that are happening in other people's books. Um, but there's no like direct interaction between you know like Bobby Hank and Ricky Turner out of uh, William Joseph Roberts' book, for example. Um, have you read the other books in this universe? I've read uh, the only the only other one that's out, which is uh, Burning Roads, that Hillbilly wrote. Okay, so you're going to have to read those to keep up, then, so you can incorporate all the goodness. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have to read them, but I'm going to read them. Well, partially because they're, you know, they're they're, they're just fun. Okay. Still, you know, William Joseph Roberts, Hillbilly, he's a pretty good storyteller. Chris Woods who is another one of the guys writing in the universe. He's a pretty good storyteller. Mike Morton, he's a darn good storyteller. Like, you know, I'm, I'm interested in just seeing what they come up with. But then also, you know, it's kind of research so that I know what not to do, you know, so I don't accidentally cross the streams, as it were. Yeah. So okay. I think the last question I have for you is, would you live in this world that you've 
helped create. Absolutely not. <laughs> no. No, no, no. I, I like a reasonably well-ordered and structured society. I like being able to leave my house and not have to freaking load, you know, make sure that I've got enough ammo in my vehicle that I can make it to the supermarket and back. And oh, by the way, if when I get to the supermarket, I'm going to probably be buying some kind of algae product. No, thank you. I like meat. <laughs> so no bacon in this universe. No donuts either, probably. No bacon donuts? So sad. Not unless you're very well off. Okay, okay. Well, I mean, I guess with enough plot armor and money, all things are possible. But shy of that, it's a hard no for you, huh? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> If uh, if you were because you mentioned your your dungeon master some games, um, have you ever thought about now that you've written this book in this world, like role playing out some of your scenarios, just for the fun of it? Um, I don't know about like tabletop, like DMing something because as uh, like one of the things I discovered as an author is that the characters more or less do what I want them to do. I mean, occasionally, you know, I'll go to I'll try to write something. And kind of get this argument from the character like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. That's the dumbest thing you possibly could make me do. And, you know, that sort of thing happens. Whereas on the tabletop, that happens all the time. Like you make a plan and you turn them loose and nothing goes according to plan. So, I mean, I might run a, like a GURPS game with Car Wars. I'd much rather just like referee some actual Car Wars games and use some of the scenarios out of the book as scenarios for a tabletop game. You know, for the actual Car Wars game. Okay. All right. And uh, we will link to, um, I'll get with Hillbilly, there is a link um, to the GURPS uh, website where you can get the, um, oh, I'm drawing a blank here, where you can get the game. So I will link that to uh, to his show notes. Um, so you can get the game yourself. And then um, adding that right now as we speak, because I didn't think to add that before, uh, Mia Culpa and uh, as we bring this home, so obviously you finished this novel. Um, assuming you're writing book two now, or are you having to wait? Um, I'm <coughs> kind of in a holding pattern on book two. I've got the out like the outline's done, and so I'm sitting on the outline. I'm working on another project that's kind of been sort of all-consuming for my storytelling skills. That's uh, you know the the working title is Ghost Ship Derelict. That is, uh, yeah, it's just a bucket full of fun to work on. I mean, it's space horror. I mean, how much more fun can you get than that? I'm here for it. Um, she was the reason that peer pressured me to uh, uh, bring this book back to life. Um, well so if you, know, if you don't know, I wrote this book originally with uh, Chris Winder. And then when we split all of the assets we had together, when he was wanted to go a different direction and then ultimately got a real job with health insurance and a grown up stuff. Um, this was one of the, the books I kept. Uh, we unpublished it originally because it needed some edits because, you know, I learned since I wrote this book, it was all straight up action. Like if you think of a roller coaster, it just went all the way to the top and then like dropped straight down. Uh, there wasn't the pacing that it needed. And so Hillbilly had read it and he's like, I really like this. You should do something with it. And so I said, well, I'm kind of busy right now. It's on the back burner. And he said, oh, but I've got this David guy and he lives near you. <laughs> Uh, and we put us in touch and you had so many great ideas. I'm like, okay, this could actually work. So it went from originally it was going to be 
let's do this universe that has the American Revolution in space because I like the American Revolution. I got my master's degree in it. Well, this series was, well, if you're going to have the American Revolution, you need the French and Indian War first. Uh, and then somehow David and I got to talking and it became, you know, more Battlestar Galactica meets Ghosts on a Ship. I don't know, Dead Space, I guess. Uh, and I'm here for it. I wouldn't have thought to write that, but uh, yeah, Scotty yeah. corrupted me with all things horror, so it's her fault. Well, and it and it certainly doesn't doesn't preclude having you know French and Indian War and space horror all at the same time. Yeah, uh, and this is and not to say we can't come back to that world as we envisioned it because we have all the show uh, all the shows we have all the universe built and then we added a bunch of stuff together. But first, we have to get them on their trip and uh, their three-hour tour, as it were. Um, so which one of us is the skipper and which one of us be, gets to be Gilligan? Because I think Gilligan had more fun. I'd rather be Gilligan. Oh, man. I was going to – like, man, I kind of want to be Gilligan. Like, he had no responsibility. He could just do whatever goofy thing okay, he wanted I'll be, to do. I'll be, I'll be the professor because uh, yeah, I think I'm Marianne in the end. <laughs> I'm just saying. You know it's true. <laughs> All right, dear listener, if you have a different opinion on who got Marianne in the end of Gilligan's Island, you can weigh in. Ignore what's official canon because I haven't watched the last episode where they actually got rescued, so I don't know. But in my head, it was Marianne and the professor. If you think differently, you can join the conversation. I think we just gave Stabby a heart attack. She's just dying over there. You can't say that it went one way or another when you didn't finish the series. Sure I can. I just did. That canon. It's my headcanon. All right. And so uh, with that being said, before Stabby dies, because she's laughing at me, uh, David, where can they find you online? And we'll link to it all in the show notes. Uh, best place to find me is at davidwhensley.com. And that links to my socials. There's a link over to my Amazon page, which, by the way, on Amazon, if you're looking for me on Amazon, it's Dave Hensley, because when I put my Amazon page together, I didn't know my butt from my elbow about being a professional author. And I didn't understand that, you know, having your name and on Amazon, the way it shows up on your books is super important. Um, so I got to work with Amazon customer service to get that rectified because I haven't been able to do it on my own. So it's Dave Hensley on Amazon and DavidWHensley.com otherwise. That's pretty easy to do. Just a uh, ticket and you're good. Um, was there anything before we before we start giving you how to reach us, uh, dear listener? Was there anything, David, that we didn't ask about seventy two hours of Graceland and the Autoduel Chronicles that we need to cover, or we, did we cover it? Gosh, I think we kind of covered it. Like I was working really hard not to give away all the cool stuff. Outstanding! That is the good strategy. You don't give away all the cool stuff in the uh, in the commercials. That's that's just bad for business. Um, and so, with that being said, when you do read this, because it is out for publication. Please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part, people. And it also signals to the authors if they self-publish or the publishers if a publisher is being used that, hey, readers like this. So uh, maybe we should keep it going. When you don't review, sometimes the series just don't get finished. And then it's your fault. You didn't do your part, dear listener. So that's your call to action. Go forth and review the books you read, all of them, every single one of them. Uh, now, you can find us on our link tree, L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E, link tree slash Blasters and Blades podcast. Again, link tree slash Blasters and Blades podcast, where we link to all the things, the bit shoot, the rumble, the Twitter, the Facebook group, Madam Stabby Stab on Instagram and Twitter, where you can send all of your hate mail and she will mock you relentlessly. But that's okay. We're here for it. And if she gets any good ones, we might even read it on air. Nice. 
We might even, right. if we get good ones to get that engagement, we might have to come up with some sort of prizes. You know, they can give it a shot. Not many people in the world has ever been able to hurt my feelings. So go ahead, give it a try. <laughs> um, absolutely. I'm, I'm here to watch. <clears throat> I'll grab my popcorn. I'll get some to David. He only lives a couple miles away and uh, we'll be good to go. Um, you're not like a, a, afraid of blood or anything, right? Because this could get ugly when stabby works. I'm just saying. As long as it's somebody else's blood, we're cool. All right, then we're good. We're good to go. All right, we'll get the popcorn. We'll get the bourbon. We got to rock this thing out. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com for serious business inquiries only. And that includes if you want to come on the show as either a panelist or you wrote stuff yourself. Uh, as you've noticed with these panels we've done, not all of them are authors. Some of them are just uber nerds like us. So, you know, if you've got topic ideas and you want to come on and chat on air, we're here for it. Uh, although, unfortunately, if you're listening and you're underage, Amazon doesn't like that. Or not Amazon, excuse me. Uh, YouTube doesn't like having kids on. It's something about European laws. So, unfortunately, to be a guest, you do have to be 18. Uh, because it changes the way everything works. And I'm going to pretend I know why and all that stuff. I just see the thing and I smile and I nod and we rock on. All right. You can find us on our website at anchor.fm slash blasters, tack and tack blades. Again, anchor.fm slash blasters, dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. So do your part, people. We greatly appreciate it. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com slash author J.R. Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash author J.R. Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast, and I will keep my co-host duly caffeinated on Coffee Brand Coffee, our other affiliate sponsor. Uh, we will drink until Java pours out of our eyeballs. So I've got the um, the s'mores. I think next I'm going to try the blueberry. You, you sung it praises, but they also I, have strawberry and cream. So I don't know. That seems a little too fruit fruit for coffee to me. I can't do the strawberries and cream. Like that just sounds too like too much. But the blueberry, I'm telling you. Have you tried the pumpkin stuff yet? Because I know you like the pumpkin flavor. We are PSL basic bitches here. So I have to be careful when it comes to pumpkin spice. So I do not get my pumpkin spice lattes from Starbucks. I don't I don't go to Starbucks for them because the pumpkin spice stuff that they use puts this like a uh, orange dye into your coffee and it actually makes me really sick. So oh. I buy my own creamer and I make pumpkin spice, but every once in a while I'll just buy the coffee mate version because it doesn't have too much of that stuff in it. Um, so I've been on the fence about buying coffee that has pumpkin spice in it. Cause then okay. if it hurts my belly, then I'm wasting a whole bag because Nick won't fair. drink that. Yeah, Nick's a little bit basic when it comes to everything. And we don't mean basic in a good way, like who enjoys a good pumpkin spice. Uh, no, he, he just, likes army sludge. If the spoon doesn't stand up, he doesn't want any part of it. Exactly. Uh, he just doesn't have a refined palate like we do. But he doesn't drink with his pinky out either because he's uncivilized. Um, on Sundays. On Sundays. On Sundays. Oh, on Sundays. Well, okay. we got to have some standards. I appreciate that, you know, the officer knife and fork school sort of you know, chipped off some of the rough edges. Not all of them, but some. We'll take it. Just Sunday brunch, you know, yeah. when he has some so mimosa if, and all the gummies. So if we can get enough sales of his Bengali uh, comic books or we can get enough, you know, affiliate purchases from you guys, dear listener, uh, maybe we could afford to send him to finishing school. I mean, you know, 
<laughs> otherwise you just you get stuck with knuckle dragging nick and you know everybody loves knuckle dragging nick so we'll uh we'll rock on with that all right i mean i did i married him so <laughs> yeah but weren't you on substances that were like mind altering at the time i don't know that's what i heard rumor anyway no sad part is is i was actually completely sober what is wrong with me Ooh, i don't know if i'm qualified <laughs> to be that kind of therapist nope right <laughs> All right. If you're listening, Nick, please don't shoot me. Thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For my crazy co-host, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blast of the Lake Podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. All right. And we're out. I'm hitting the button. Wait for it.